This is the third Sunday of Advent, and uh, you probably noticed that Father Emerson was wearing a rose-colored vestment. Two times a year, most of the clergy around here get to wear a vestment that's consistent with their political and social views. <laughs> but uh, it's sort of a, a little piece of antiquity that uh, we like to observe here. When Advent was a season that emphasized the penitential aspect of its history more deeply than it does these days, the rose-colored vestments were supposed to, in a, in a color sense, an aesthetic sense, help raise the tone because the theme of the season is, uh, or of this Sunday, excuse me, is rejoicing and joy uh, as we move to the final week of Advent, which really focuses big time on the coming of Jesus, which will happen on Christmas. In Lent, there is, in the fourth Sunday uh, in Lent, the opportunity to wear rose-colored vestments as well. And uh, the theme there also is a lightening of the uh, penitential aspect of the season. So that's one of the reasons. But as you know, St. Luke's for many years has believed in a system of salvation by haberdashery. And that's also one of the reasons we wear them. Last week, uh, I preached on all three readings, and I want to do it again because I want to say what they're about. I want to reinforce some things I said last week about the Bible because I'm kind of on a jag about this over the last uh, couple of months. And we have a reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, a reading from 1 Thessalonians, which follows on some of the themes that we read in 1 Thessalonians about three weeks ago. And then we have from John's Gospel, uh, the introduction to the Gospel, where we meet once again, always two Sundays worth in Advent, we focus and meet John the Baptist, our old friend. And we need to explain the reason why. I mentioned to you also that Advent is the beginning of the Christian year and we're on a three-year cycle of readings. So the Gospels that are read in cycle B, which is this year, are from the Gospel according to St. Mark. But because Mark is not only the first Gospel, but the shortest, we read more from John's Gospel in year B than we do in the other uh, cycles of the church year A and C so we hear from the Johannine that's the 3995 way to talk about this a view of John the Baptist and then I may say something at the end or interlarded through the sermon about what we mean when we speak about joy what does it mean if you're a Christian person and you're a person of joy and how do we understand that so let's go to Isaiah. Remember the, one of the overarching comments that, that I'm drilling into you now for the last while is my teacher, Dr. O.C. Edwards, who said in the first class I ever took from him at Neshota House, the first year I was there, this is typical, by the way, of, of um, academic life, but the class was called... Um, the emergence of the Christian movement in its earliest literature, meaning introduction to the New Testament. 
He said about on the first or second day, it isn't important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. And I suppose if I fiddled with that a little, I would say it isn't as important what the Bible says as what the Bible means. And so it's important for us to understand that Episcopalians uh, use and find useful uh, what we call in scholarship higher criticism. In other words, looking at the Bible from a historical critical point of view. Critical, not finding fault. That's not what that means. But you know, it means a, a careful examination of the biblical witness. So last week I mentioned to you that in Isaiah, we have the, the reigning hypothesis for Old Testament scholars who study Isaiah is that there was more than one Isaiah. And I don't know whether I said it very elegantly last week, but I'm going to read to you from a, a capsule version of what I meant so that you can understand uh, what I was getting at. The book of Isaiah is a collection of poems composed by Isaiah with additional material added later by disciples of the prophet. Through chapter 39, most of the material is Isaiah's and is an accurate account of the situation in 8th century Judah. We're speaking now BCE. So that's the 800s BC, right? The 8th century in Judah. Chapters 13 to 14, 24 to 27, and 34 to 35 were probably the work of others. Chapters 40 through 55 were probably written by an anonymous poet near the end of the Babylonian captivity, while chapters 56 through 66 were written later by anonymous disciples committed to continuing Isaiah's work. Now that introduction that I just read to you comes from the New American Bible. The New American Bible is the authorized text for the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, what I'm reading to you from is not from some wild and woolly liberal ecclesiastical organization. All right? Why is it? Who cares? You know? Well, the reason it's important is because it gives you some idea of the continuity of the tradition. It gives you some idea of the development of how when people heard a prophetic witness, the type, the template that was created out of that particular prophetic witness had effect beyond the generation in which the prophecy was originally exercised by the person Isaiah, and that the community, the people of the covenant, were at pains to preserve a viewpoint that is going to now be recapitulated in Jesus and by those who wrote the New Testament to say that in Jesus' ministry he personified what had been announced in our sacred texts all along and that is that God's default position is that he unconditionally accepts and loves us and forgives us and that the time has come in the ministry of Jesus to announce that and to say that we err always on the side of inclusion. And today, what we read from Isaiah, third Isaiah, I was taught trito Isaiah, 
because it's chapter 61, is that we hear the great gospel of liberation in the Hebrew Bible. These words were quoted by Jesus himself in the synagogue in our patron Luke's gospel where he goes to the synagogue in his home area and he reads just from this, from the scroll, and sits down and tells everybody in the synagogue that today this scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing, in his person, in him. And it is about God's freeing activity not only in the community of faith, the people of the covenant, to allow them now to offer God's welcome to everyone and the vesting in them of the special responsibilities to do that, but it is also the announcement of this freedom and liberation which comes internally, personally, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally for all human beings. And in Advent, this is a particularly important thing because we're talking about what we can anticipate. And anticipation for Christian people also brings some species of joy. The anticipation I'm talking about is when I was a little kid and I was like on about the 23rd of December. And I was so excited, I could hardly stand it. I could hardly stand this. You know, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I just knew that it would be mostly good. (laughs) Me, right? And for everybody there. And people generally tended to be a little bit uh, more generous during that time unless we had an argument at the table about creamed onions, which I hope every year that we would not. (laughs) You know, the annual knock down and drag out known as the family Christmas dinner. (laughs) But most of the time it was good. It was good. So we think about on the third Sunday of Advent, we're thinking about now how we cooperate with the divine initiative and the people in the time of Isaiah even said, you know what, this prophecy that we're listening to is about restoration and reconciliation. It's about coming back from exile. It's about putting all this stuff back together. It's about a new opportunity that's coming out of collapse and alienation and difficulty. Not, not a bad theme for, for, for people living in 2008 in the United States of America. Right? Lots of challenges and opportunities in front of us in this way. And the opportunity to be joyful is is that even from uh, Trito Isaiah, we hear that it is possible now to have hope and to be joyful and also to remind ourselves that each of us has a role to play in big and small ways to be instruments of God's restorative processes. Remember I read to you from the hymn that we sang last week, that small line, to restore earth's own true loveliness once more. That that should be what you and I are about in some way, in our family, in the workplace, and help asking God to help us do that with our internal demons. To allow the loveliness that's in every human person to shine through. So Paul, 
in 1 Thessalonians today, um, one, once more some biblical uh, history and scholarship. This is the earliest piece of writing in the New Testament. Paul's writings precede the writing of the gospel. So we date 1 Thessalonians between 50 and 55 A.D. And we read in here Paul struggling with the community in Thessalonica about the fact that they're now about to a generation out. Jesus hasn't come again. How do they think about the second coming? And what is their responsibility to respond to the divine initiative as they desire to in some way be engaged in some species of missionary work? What is missionary work? Is it coming and following the pattern that we have seen in missionary work for, the, for 200 or more years among Western Christians? I think not. But it is a good idea to say, you know what, missionary work could have something to do with our willingness to share our greatest place of safety and assurance in Jesus and how that fits nicely in how we think about honoring all traditions and what our place is in this in the cooperative sense. And I'll venture to say that if I were a student of missionary work, we have always found it at its most successful when there has been that kind of cooperative spirit. I think especially of Bishop Leslie Newbigin in India, who um, was as well-versed in the uh, uh, sacred scriptures of, of the Hindu religion. Hindu is not the right one to, word to use, really, uh, as he was in the Christian scriptures. So Paul gives us a little template here, one of many. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, do not quench the spirit, do not despise the word of prophets, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Tools you can use. Have a disposition that is uh, prone to being joyful. I'll explain that in a minute. Pray without ceasing. I've said this to you several times. I, I, when I first was here, I had somebody come to see me in, in my office, and they said, you know, Father Brewer, I was standing on the corner there of a university in Maine to go across the street to the Los Gatos Coffee Roasting Company. And as it said walk, I started walking, and I had this huge urge to say the Lord's Prayer to myself. I'm here because I want to know if all of a sudden I'm becoming a religious fanatic. <laughs> you know, what happened? <laughs> well, if you went to Neshota House when I did and you took ascetical theology from Dean Parsons, um, he was, my grandfather would have called him a stuffed shirt. <laughs> it sounds very disrespectful, but it's an apt description. Nonetheless, he knew some stuff about the spiritual life, and he referred to uh, this as habitual recollection in the classic language, being able to do that and then move on. But throughout the day, there was some sort of rhythm, rhythmic response through prayer or through just an attitude of centering in God momentarily which is what that, what that means. Give thanks in all circumstances. Class is half full uh, rather than half em empty. Do not quench the spirit. 
The Spirit is God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. So, you know, don't, uh, don't prejudge the process every day when you get up in the morning. Test everything. If Christianity, or for that matter, any point of view, human, humanism, whatever it is you want to do, if it will not stand the test and bringing to bear the full force and effect of your intellect, intellectual powers on it, then don't waste your time. So test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. That sounds like it could get off into territory we don't want to move to at this particular point. But remember, that means something about uh, the examined life. And um, as I learned in seminary, most of us uh, are worried more about what we used to call the warm sins than we are about the ones that we just don't think are uh, important, you know. Somebody who is relentlessly hard-hearted is somebody who has work to do. My teacher, Urban Holmes, said to me, most people think if they haven't murdered anybody, if they haven't stolen anything, if they haven't committed adultery, and if they haven't cursed God, they are in the clear. (laughs) Right? And you know, the spiritual life is, is more than that. The examined life. We as Episcopalians would always warn people who wish to be serious about the, the searching and fearless moral inventory that we're uh, to, to uh, uh, use on ourselves, not fall over into scrupulosity, which is uh, the overemphasis on those things, but to merely have a realistic view of uh, where we could do better. So Paul gives you on the third Sunday in Advent a way to respond by understanding you have a place in all this. Paul also meant when he was thinking about waiting for the coming is preparing yourself by using this, these and other tools to cope with the, the historical reality on the ground that he was talking about. Because in about uh, 30 years, 25 years after this was written, it all collapses. And the temple in, in Jerusalem is destroyed and the whole place is up for grabs all over the ancient Near East. So think about this always in terms of human history. And finally, we've got John's Gospel. And we have John the Baptist in John's Gospel. Uh, Being true to the biblical scholarship, there was a famous biblical scholar in the 20th century named Rudolf Bultmann who believed that the introduction to John's gospel was originally an introduction to a gospel about John the Baptist and that it got rewritten and talks now about Jesus. Uh, The thing about that is there is simply no manuscript evidence to support that whatsoever. Be that as it may, it was clear that the author of John's gospel was at pains to speak about the role of John the Baptist as it pertains to the coming of Jesus and also to the nature of Jesus' ministry. This is from the introduction to John's Gospel. It's called in fancy language the Johannine Prologue. 
And Jesus is referred to in this gospel as the logos in Greek. So logos can mean word. It can mean a plan. And it can also mean the organizing principle. And I always think when I read this uh, introduction that I'm thinking about the organizing principle for how I understand being the best human being that I can be and seeing in Jesus the organizing principle by which I do this. But also in this particular section to understand that John the Baptist is the one who stands in continuity with God's work in human history in his announcement of the coming of Jesus. And why that's important for us is to say that within human history, we have always seen the signs of God's abiding presence. And as Christian people, this time of year, we say that in the birth of Jesus, we have seen now the birth of the unique focus of the divine presence for us. And by virtue of that, we're going to make, draw some conclusions about the nature of what it means to be a human being and what it means to be a religious person and what it means when we use the term God and how that plays itself out as we seek to be faithful. Joy for the Christian person is the sure and steady confidence that the uncertainties, the ambiguities, and conundrums of life are going to come into surer and clearer focus as we become more intentional about our lives and place ourselves before God in a way that says, I wish to know what my role is in terms of being consistent with your will and purpose. Some of you may believe that that has something to do with uh, specific religious language or specific religious activity. And while we preach and teach that those things are important and necessary, it is more important to say in this particular case that God's will and purpose for you as you serve it can often happen within the ordinary and commonplace activities of your own lives, not in stepping out and doing something differently. But whatever it is you do on a daily basis, you can do consistent with God's purposes. And whenever you rise to the occasion, whenever you do the highest and best of what it means to be a human being, you are in alignment with God's purposes for you. So this week, uh, give thanks for the opportunity to uh, be in alignment. Ask God to help you do that. Realize that uh, God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness is the default position for Christian people. And that as you seek to be faithful, you will find the ways and the means to do it. Amen. 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 Café.